So have you ever had a time in your life when you have felt rejected? If you have, just think about that moment for a quick second. When we are rejected by people around us, when we are rejected by loved ones, when we're rejected by friends, colleagues, whatever it is in life, it really, really hurts. I mean, in our humanness, we have an intense desire to be accepted and to be welcomed and to be in community. Even the most introverted of introverts needs a few people in their life that they are connected with intimately in community. I was actually just reflecting on a time when I really felt rejected. It was actually during my days in elementary school. You might find it a little hard to believe, but I was a little bit of a, of a nerd back in elementary school. And it turns out the school that I actually went to, everybody was incredibly uh, sporty, incredibly athletic. Every guy there played, all the boys played hockey, all the girls played ringette. Everyone was active in sports, gymnastics, soccer, baseball, whatever it was. And then you had Kevin. This little nerdy guy off on the side reading comic books and, you know, kind of playing around with computer games when they were brand spanking new. I remember gym class. Gym class was brutal. It was, I hated gym class because they would always pick someone to be the captain, line up all the kids. And just like you see in TV shows and in the movies, I was always the last kid picked. And then sometimes you go, well, you know, kids are cruel and that's a horrible thing. But, you know, it wasn't just the kids, too. I was so bad at sports. Even the gym teacher once looked at me square in the eye and said, Kevin, you stink. Go sit down. (laughs) Completely rejected from the teacher who's supposed to be guiding me and coaching me in this. And uh, thankfully, years of therapy and years of counseling have helped me with that. But that rejection at a young age, it has a way of sticking with us. That um, rejection that we experience in our adult life, it hurts and it sticks whether you've been rejected by a spouse, whether you've been rejected in your workplace, whether you've been rejected by friends at school, whether you've been rejected by children, whatever it is, it hurts and it's painful. And so today, as we continue our sermon series, King for All, we're going through the Gospel of Luke. That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about um, being rejected. And I want to talk about it in a way that's going to be a little different than the way you would expect me to be talking about overcoming and dealing with rejection. So again, just as a quick reminder, the Gospel of Luke that we are going through is one of the four Gospels. And when we say the Gospel, this is like the good news of Jesus. This is his his ministry on earth, you know, starting from you know when he was foretold that, that Jesus was going to be born. Then he was born of the Virgin Mary and did his life and did his ministry, ushering in the kingdom of God, and then ending with his death, his resurrection, and then ascending back, returning back to his throne in heaven heaven. So Luke, uh, he kind of records his gospel 
as a fission. So it's very detailed. It's very well thought out. It's very structured. And each part kind of really connects well to the other parts. In fact, that's why I actually, when someone is new to the Christian faith, I know a lot of people tell new Christians, you should read John. You should read John. I actually don't say that because I find John is to be very, very head heavy. A lot of theology, even just right at the beginning and the beginning with the word and the word was God. The word was with God. Like right from verse one, new Christians like, what am I reading? <laughs> so that's why I always bring new people in the faith to the Gospel of Luke. That's why I bring people who are curious about Jesus to the Gospel of Luke, because it's just well mapped out and well thought out and well put together. And Luke writes for us his reasoning for writing this gospel. He tells us why he wrote this in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, where he says that he put all this together so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Right? He's reminding the church that you've been taught about the life and the teaching of ministry. You've been taught his parables. You've been taught how he lived. You've been taught about his healing ministry. You've been taught about his death, resurrection, his return to heaven. And you need certainty of these things that you've been taught. Because we live in a world, quite frankly, with a lot of uncertainty, with a lot of doubts and a lot of questions. And so today what we're going to do is we continue on that theme to help all of us, whether we're new in the faith or we've been walking with Jesus for decades, to help all of us know with certainty who Jesus is. That he's not just simply a good moral teacher, he's not just a good religious leader, that he is a king. That he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is king for all not just for some, not just for church people, but he's the king for all. So today we're going to look and unpack together Luke chapter 4. Um, you know, so Luke just kind of give a bit of a summary of what's happened before, uh, before we read the text in Luke chapter 4. Uh, we start off in the birth of Jesus. We saw how Jesus was foretold. An angel came to the, the Virgin Mary and, and told her that the Holy Spirit was going to come on her. She was going to give birth to a son. She was going to name him Jesus. Um, and then we saw, you know, the shepherds and, and coming and learning about this and that because that Jesus, because Jesus was foretold in such a way, everyone who came into the presence of Jesus automatically had to go and tell other people. So we started off this series talking about that, that we in turn, we tell other people about Jesus because of the encounter that we have had with Jesus. And then last week we saw how that you and I should be living lives that make the path straight for other people to come to Jesus. We looked at the ministry and the life of John the Baptist, how he's this wild man in the wilderness calling people to not just this obedience, this religious obedience, but calling people to look at their hearts, look at the sin in their heart, the junk in their heart, and to turn from it. Turn from those things and turn your heart back to God. And John called that repentance. And so as you and I live a life of repentance, of turning our hearts back to God, it's not about us waving holy fingers at other people and telling you need to and you need to and you better stop. No, 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 no. Start with your own heart. (laughs) Start with your own heart, right? And we need to check our hearts 
to make sure that we're not putting stumbling blocks on the path for other people to come to Jesus. So that's what Luke's gospel starts off with. And then we see that Jesus is baptized by John. We see that in Luke chapter 3. And then right after his baptism, and the baptism story of Jesus is a great picture of the Trinity of God. You've got Jesus the Son. You have the Holy Spirit who descends like a a dove and comes upon Jesus. And then you hear the voice of God the Father, where he declares that this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then right after that event, Luke goes into this story about Jesus going into the wilderness for 40 days to fast, to pray, to meet with God, to prepare himself as he's about to embark on his three-year journey of ministering to the people of God. And then right after, and then so while he's in the wilderness, the devil comes and tempts him. He overcomes the temptations of the devil. And then right after that, Jesus returns to the region in Israel called Galilee. So Galilee is kind of a region with multiple towns in there. So that's where we're going to pick up the story is after Jesus's temptation and he returns back to Galilee. So I'm going to start reading in Luke chapter four. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to read a few verses and then unpack it. I'm going to read a few verses and unpack it. I'm just going to work my way to the end of Luke chapter 4 that way. And then my hope and my desire is as we unpack the word of God together, that you and I will each take a good long look at our own hearts on this topic of rejection, on this topic of rejection, and see what God really has in store for us when it comes to dealing with rejection. So I'm going to start here in Luke chapter 4, and I'm going to start reading in verse 14. So again, right after the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So Jesus has this 40-day encounter, meeting with God in prayer, dealing with the attacks of our spiritual enemy, the devil, and he overcomes these temptations that the devil throws at him. And it starts off, Luke records this very clearly, that Jesus returns in power. Now, Jesus always had power, absolutely, but there's something that, that, that Luke is highlighting for us here, right at the beginning of this section, that Jesus now returns into Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And What we see right after that is in this power, when it talks about the people that he encounters as he teaches in the different synagogues that would have been in the region of Galilee, it says that everyone praised him. Now, this word praise that is being used here by Luke is not a word of just admiration. It's not a word of, wow, Jesus is a really good teacher. Jesus is a really good speaker. I really love the authority that Jesus brings to the messages in the synagogue week after week. Now, this word praise is the same similarity that we find in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Psalms, when it comes to the praise and adoration of glorifying God. Think about that for a moment. Right from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, as he comes out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit, is that the people of Israel recognize immediately that this is different. 
You see, the people of Israel had been waiting for a long time for the Messiah to come. This promised king of kings, this promised king of the Jews who would come and restore Israel to her place of prominence in the world. That would free Israel from Roman oppression, from the enemies that were constantly trying to destroy the people of God. They were waiting and longing for this king of Israel to come and bring power back to their land, to bring freedom back to their land. And so when they see Jesus in here, they are praising his divinity right here at the beginning of Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Everyone praised him, praising the divinity that they see because of the power of his ministry. So let's just continue here. Luke 4, I'm going to continue in verse 16. It says, So now he, being Jesus, he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right, so Luke starts this section off reminding us that Jesus has come in the power of the Spirit, and then quoting this passage of Isaiah, the reason, again, this is how Luke writes. When you look how it's just all connected, it points to the next thing. It points to the next thing. Starts in verse 14. Jesus comes in the power of the spirit. And then quoting the prophet Isaiah, it's the spirit of the Lord is on me. You see, Isaiah was uh, written about 600, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And this is one of those prophetic passages where it's pointing to this coming Messiah, where it's pointing to God's servant who is going to come to free people from their sin. So it starts off, Luke reminds us, Jesus comes in power, quotes the Old Testament that the spirit of the Lord is on Jesus, right? This direct relation between verse 14 and verse 18 that we can see here, right? This prophecy is pointing to the coming Messiah. Luke has already given us the hint that Jesus is this Messiah by the spirit being on him and everybody praising him and glorifying him. And then it continues down here in verse 20. Where it says, then he, Jesus, rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And then he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? See, right here by Jesus reading this passage from Isaiah, what Jesus sitting back down and basically doing the ultimate mic drop. It's this just proclaim something and just goes, boom, there's nothing else to say. Jesus declares today this scripture is fulfilled 
in your hearing. You just witnessed this prophecy of six, seven hundred years ago come true right in front of you. See, when kind of people kind of say, well, Jesus never said he was God. Jesus never declared he was God. Jesus never said these things. Um, he does multiple times in multiple ways. And this is how Luke is showing us where Jesus is declaring himself to be the Messiah by calling out this prophecy about the coming Messiah and saying, I'm him. <laughs> I'm the Messiah. I've come exactly as this said, I was going to come. It's been fulfilled in your day. And now it's fascinating about this story. It's because we've, those of us who are familiar with church, who grew up in church, are familiar with this story, we um, know what's going to happen. And I'm going to spoil it a little bit if you are new to this. At some point, everybody's going to freak out <laughs> and get very, very mad at Jesus. That's coming. Okay? That's coming. But it's not at this point that they freak out. You see, the people are already praising Jesus. The people have already seen Jesus's ministry, right? And look again, uh, what it says in verse 22. After Jesus said these things, right, it says, all spoke well of him. And they were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. So Jesus declaring that this prophecy has come true in your hearing, no one is actually freaked out about that. No one freaked out about Jesus saying, I'm the Messiah. Why are they not freaked out? Because they're waiting for the Messiah. They want the Messiah to be there. They're just thrilled that, wow, the Messiah came in my lifetime. I got to witness it. That's what we saw earlier in Luke's gospel as well, when Jesus was presented at the temple and, and when Mary and Joseph went to the temple with baby Jesus. Everyone was like, yes, I get to witness this. We've been waiting for so long. All spoke well. But then confusion starts to kick in, right? This is why Luke says right at the beginning, no, I want you to know with certainty the things that you've been taught. Because doubt just has a way of creeping in. And so here you got the people of God, the people of Israel waiting for a Messiah, people who would have known the teaching of Isaiah, longing for this king of Israel to come. And then they witness it. They've heard the stories They've seen the miracles, and now confusion kicks in. They go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph's son? It's like, well, we're getting all excited here, but it's Jesus. <laughs> it's Joseph's son. Remember, he's in Nazareth right now. He's in the place where he grew up. So people would know his family. People would know his, his, his mother and his father. People would know his brothers and sisters. People would know them there. And they're going, wait a minute, it's Jesus. And then in verse 23, Jesus says this. So Jesus said to them in their confusion, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Now, what did Jesus do in Capernaum? Well, Luke doesn't actually tell us that in his gospel. But if you want to get a glimpse of what Jesus did before showing up in Nazareth, is first coming out of the wilderness, he went to, he went to Capernaum first. 
And in Capernaum, we can read about that in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 1 to Mark chapter 5 shows us the ministry of Jesus in Capernaum before he goes back to Nazareth. Right? So that's why in Nazareth, people have already heard about Jesus' teaching because of everything he did in Capernaum. Jesus, uh, people in Nazareth already knew about all the miracles because they've heard through word of mouth all the miracles that Jesus did up in Capernaum. And so what did Jesus do in Capernaum? Well, there, Jesus cast out many demons. In Capernaum, Jesus healed the, the paralyzed man that was lowered through the ceiling. You know, when they, the friends of this paralyzed man ripped open the ceiling and lowered him so he could be brought before Jesus. Uh, Jesus healed a woman who had been suffering for decades with bleeding. Jesus gave sight to several blind people. Jesus healed a Roman centurion's daughter. He healed several leopards. He gave hearing to the deaf. You see, everything that Jesus did in Capernaum is described in this prophet, uh, this prophecy from Isaiah here, from Isaiah 61. It's, it's the words here of the, the Spirit of the Lord being on Jesus and that Jesus anointed him, that God anointed him. The spirit anointed him to proclaim good news to the poor. Everywhere that Jesus went in Capernaum, he was preaching the good news that the kingdom of God is there. He'd been bringing freedom to the prisoner, those who were under spiritual oppression from demons. Jesus cast those demons out with a word, just get out and be gone. He set those prisoners free. He gave sight to many blind people. He he made the leopards clean from their disease. And so the people are so incredibly excited to see now what Jesus is going to do in Nazareth because they've heard about it. And now they're excited to see what he's going to do here, right? So the people are pumped. There's a little bit of confusion kicking in, but they're still excited. And then Luke continues here in this account in verse 24. Says Jesus continues, he says, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many, many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. So there's this famine in Israel. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. There's this famine in the land for three and a half years, and Elijah didn't go to help the people of Israel. Look what he did. He said, but he went to help, but he went to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many Israel, uh, were, there were many in Israel was leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman, the Syrian. This is, fascinating what is going on here because then look what happens here in verse 28 now or here it says my translation all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this all the people became furious when they heard this part that Jesus just taught them You see, the people didn't become furious when Jesus called himself the Messiah. 
people didn't become furious over him teaching and reading this passage. People didn't become furious at Jesus when um, he was doing all these miracles for the people in Capernaum, right? People became furious with the idea that God would do something they didn't like. And that was <laughs> to not just be the king of Israel, but to be the king for all. You see, the people of Israel became furious when Jesus reminded them that sometimes, even as people of Israel, as God's chosen people, as God's people that he loved, that he wanted to bless the world with, that out of that lineage, the Messiah would come, is sometimes God doesn't take care of them in their time of need, that God has a different plan and he's going to go and heal Gentiles. He's going to go and step into the lives of people that the Israelites despise, that the Israelites hate. And this reminder that God is king for all, not just their king, makes them furious. And that idea is not just a New Testament idea. This isn't the first time this happens. We actually see this way back in the book of Jonah. You know, again, if you're new to the Bible, not familiar with the Bible, the story of Jonah, you probably know it because it's just that classic story of someone who was told to go to one place by God, ran the other way, he got on a boat, had to get thrown off the boat because of this huge storm, and this fish, giant fish shows up, eats him, and he sits and spends three days in the belly of this giant fish. And then he finally goes back and does what God wants him to do. God wants to bring healing and repentance and reconciliation and wants the enemies of Israel to turn from their sin and turn to God. So Jonah the prophet goes, delivers the message, and the people repent of their sin and turn to God. And Jonah is furious. You see, so often we look at this passage here because it's got this title here before this text where it says Jesus rejected at Nazareth, right? So that's how my Bible here classifies this section. And so often, because we're so familiar with this text, we hear this verse, we read this verse of the prophet not being accepted in their hometown, Right. It's this idea. We hear this terminology a lot. Right. In verse 24, again, it says no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Right. And there is biblical teaching that tells us as the people of God, as Christians, as people who believe in God, that you will be rejected by people. There are many verses in the New Testament that actually teach that. You could look up just a couple of them I can share with you. You could look up 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. It talks about how man will reject you because of your faith in God. In John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 18, uh, Jesus tells his disciples that the world will hate you because it first hated Jesus. So there are passages that say you will be rejected because of your faith. The problem is... In this text, in Luke chapter 4, that's not what it's about. You see, this isn't a passage about someone of faith rejecting someone, or someone of, sorry, someone, this, this isn't a passage about people of non-faith rejecting someone of faith. This is a passage about people of faith rejecting God's 
plan. And that's very, very different. People of faith who see and hear what God is doing and they don't like it and become furious. Think again for a moment of that time in your life when you have felt rejected by someone. Just think about that for a while. I'm, you know, I was reflecting on that a lot this week. The, you know, the bullies at school, the, the constantly feeling like I was alone, the number of recesses that I had by myself, not playing with the other kids, of being rejected. It hurts. It hurts. Now think for a moment. Think of this passage from God's perspective. You see, the God who so loved the world, the God who would leave his throne, that he would be born of the Virgin Mary, that he would live a sinless life, and that he would come to proclaim the goodness of God, and that he would lay down his life as a ransom for people far from God. That God's love is so great for his people that he would die for them. And when the people of God, the people that God loves, the people that have experienced the, the, the closeness and the presence and the miracles of God, and those people reject God. How do you think that makes God feel? Well, it feels exactly like how you and I feel when we're rejected. It breaks the heart of God when people reject the plan of God. Right? The people are furious because Jesus spoke of Gentiles receiving God's aid instead of Israel receiving aid. You see, again, the big idea that I really want you to kind of hang your hat on today and the big idea that I want you to talk about in your life groups that I want you praying about is looking at this passage, rereading this passage and reread it through this big idea that this is not a passage about our rejection. But it's a passage about our rejection of God's plans. That's what it's about. It's not a passage about how I'm being rejected. It's a passage about how I reject God's plans. Over the last few months, (laughs) this uh, pandemic that we've been living in since March of 2020, There's more and more evidence, I think, that it's really starting to get to us. (laughs) I know personally, it's starting to get to me. Uh, I I miss getting dressed in the morning and going to the office. I I miss seeing people. I miss hugging people. I miss hanging out with my buddies and having board game night on Friday nights and all the things that, that we used to do kind of before all these shutdowns and everything started happening. But one of the things that I'm noticing more and more and more is not just simply frustration and disappointment. What I'm seeing more and more is a strong increase in anger. And where I see that anger coming out the most is not from my non-Christian friends. Where I'm seeing an increase in anger is from my Christian friends from fellow pastors, from people in our church, where we are becoming furious. That there's this anger that is creeping out and is spilling over. 
right? This anger, this, that we're furious because of, you know, the loss of our religious freedoms. You know, we're becoming furious over our rights to gather. We're becoming furious that we're not able to live out the, the traditions and the, our preferences that we like as Christians. Right now, all those things that I just named are, are good things. They're good and important things. Our religious freedoms, our rights to gather, our traditions and our preferences, all of these things are good things. But what if, what if God is doing a new thing in order to bless people outside of the church? You see, what if it's actually not about us? Yes, I believe that God wants to bless his children. Yes, I believe God wants to meet with his children and provide healing and nourishment and blessing to the church, to Christians, to his children. I believe that. But we see again and again and again all throughout the Bible that God's plans and God's ways are not our ways. That God does things that are way beyond our comprehension, not for our blessing, but so that other people will be reached and brought into the family of God. You see, that is one of the big messages that the prophets of old were constantly bringing back to the people of Israel. Like, I find it funny when I, well, funny slash sad. <laughs> it's not funny, it's sad, actually, that every time we read of the people of Israel turning away and a prophet has got to come to remind them, it's because they've become self-absorbed. It's because they've, it's all about me. It's all about my my wants, my desires, my preferences, my whatever. Me, 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 me. And they forget the covenant relationship that God has with them. That God promised the people of Israel that through you, you will be a blessing to all the nations. That you will be a blessing to the entire world. Right, The blessing and the relationship that they experienced as God's chosen people was so that they would in turn bless everybody else. And that's the exact same call and mission that we still live out as the church today. The reason God shows up in our lives, the reason why God restores our marriages, the reason why God reconciles us in our relationships, the reason why God gives us spiritual, emotional, physical healing, the reason why God provides for us and he nourishes us and he gives us money so we can pay our bills when we seek him, all of these things is not for us. Is so that you and I can be a blessing to all the nations. And so this reminder from this passage where Jesus says, remember when God did this? When it wasn't about you, but God wanted to do something over there. I was talking about this in one of our leadership meetings this past week. And when you look at the suffering of this past year. And I don't want to kind of try to belittle the suffering because it's been hard. And a lot of people have suffered way more than I have. Sure, I've spent 11 months working in my basement and I miss hanging out with my friends and I miss visiting my family members who I can't see right now. Um, and it hurts. But that's nothing compared to the way other people have suffered. Losing loved ones, losing their jobs, losing their financial stability, all of those things. It's hard. But what if our temporary suffering is so that we can get on board with God's plan of seeking and saving the loss? 
What if our temporary suffering brings more and more people into an eternal relationship with God? Doesn't that make our temporary earthly suffering worth it? That's what Jesus is reminding people of here. It's not a passage about I'm being rejected. It's a reminder for each and every one of us that we, if we're not careful, we can become furious with the plans of God and we can reject God's plans. That's what Jesus is reminding. That's why Jesus didn't do anything there. That's why Jesus just kind of left, didn't do any miracles there, was because of their lack of trust and faith in God's plan. Not about me being rejected, but it's about me having a heart that rejects God. So how do we overcome that? If you have been struggling with anger over the past 11 months and, you know, show a hands in the chat, you know, just share, just say, yep, me in the chat on Sunday morning. If that's you, if that's any point in the past 11 months, you've dealt with anger. Just put, yep, me. And I'm the first to type it first to raise my hand. I've been dealing with anger. <laughs> There's a lot of things happening right now that I see that are making me angry. So how do we overcome that? How do we ensure that we're not becoming so furious that we can't even see what God is doing, that we can't even see how God wants to use us, that we can't even see God's plans in the world? Well, the answer is right here in this passage. You and I, as followers of Jesus, need to continue the mission of Jesus that is described right here in this passage in Luke chapter 4. As Jesus quotes Isaiah, the prophet, you see, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, the same spirit that is upon Jesus in his ministry, that exact same Holy Spirit is in you. That exact same Holy Spirit is in me. That exact same Holy Spirit is in anyone who realizes that you've got junk in your life, that you have sin in your life. And that your sin keeps you far from God. And that if you would just turn from your sin, turn from that heart that just loves your sin and say, God, forgive me for that love. Forgive me that I give that more attention than you. And you turn your heart to God and you say, Jesus, thank you for coming into my life. Thank you that you can forgive sin. And I pray that you would come in my life, that you would make me new, that you would, that, and that you would grow me and that my heart would be turned to you. When you do that, the Bible says that you become a temple of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit comes in you and makes his dwelling in you. The Spirit of the Lord is on you. And if you pray that way today, I would love if you would let us know in the chat, a little pop-up shows up. Just click that button, fill out the form that shows up. We're not going to show up at your home, but I want to get some free resources into your hands to help you along on this new journey of being a follower of Jesus. I would love to come alongside you in that. But for the rest of us who have accepted Jesus, instead of giving into our anger, instead of being furious, we need to be reminded that the spirit of the Lord is on me. That I have been anointed by the Spirit of God. And what is that anointed done? Well, that anointing causes us as followers of Jesus, as the church, to proclaim good news. Not judgment and condemnation and 
being cruel to people because they're not living up to our standards. We have good news to the spiritually poor, to the financially poor, to the mentally poor, whoever that might be. We have good news that there is a God who loves you. And he loves you so much that he died for you. And you could have this next part where you can have freedom. That you've been trapped in sin. You've been trapped in anger. You've been trapped in hatred. You've been trapped in lust. You've been trapped in gossip. You've been trapped in greed. Whatever it is. And Jesus comes. We come. The church comes to proclaim freedom from those things. And that we bring sight to the blind, whether that's a spiritual thing or a physical thing. We set the oppressed free and we proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is the mission of the church. That is the mission of our lives. And when we constantly are reminded of this passage, it's hard to be furious with God's plans. That's what I've been doing the past 11 months. The time when I've gotten angry, the time I've been furious, the time I've not liked the way things are going, the way the times I've not liked seeing how people are responding, the time I just want to respond to some emails and and there's a lot of bold and a lot of caps and a lot of exclamation points. Delete, 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 work my way back and be reminded that I want to be on board with whatever God is doing. I want our church to be on board with whatever God is doing. So even though these things that are out there that are making us angry, it's okay to pursue those things. It's okay to defend those things. But if it is making you so furious, so furious that you've forgotten what God's ultimate plan is for your life, we need to repent. We need to turn from that. And we need to be reminded that God has got bigger plans than we have. Because this passage is not about you and I being rejected by non-believers. This passage is about the possibility that you and I could reject God's plan for our lives and for what he wants to do in the world. So I'm going to take a moment to pray for us because I I realize this is hitting this passage in a way that might be different. In fact, as I was praying over this and I was studying this and I was unpacking this, I had to kind of go back to this again and again and go to all my commentaries and my online library. And I'm going, like, am I wrong? Like, am I seeing this the wrong way? It's like, it's what it says. It's what the text says. The text is clear here. This isn't about non-believers rejecting you. But it's about the danger that in our anger of seeing God blessing other people more than he's blessing us, we could turn away from God's plans. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that for our church. I don't want that for the church in large here in our city of Ottawa, in the country of Canada or in the world. We should all be reminded of God's plans for the world, that he came to seek and save the lost. And he wants to use you and me to accomplish that. So I'm going to take a moment to just pray for you, to pray for our church, that we would have eyes to see what God wants to do this year and in the years to come. So let's pray together. Father God, I praise you and I thank you for the reminder of what Jesus shows us here in Luke's gospel, that the same spirit that came in power on Jesus, the same spirit of the Lord that was on him, the same Holy Spirit that rose him from the dead 
The same spirit is the same spirit that Jesus sent to indwell, to come in everyone who would repent of their sin and turn their hearts to God. The spirit of the Lord is on us. The spirit of the Lord is on me. The spirit of the Lord is on you. The spirit of the Lord is on Greenbelt Church. And so God, you have anointed us as your children to proclaim good news to the poor. You want us to bring good news to those who are struggling financially. You want us to bring good news to those who are poor in spirit. You want us to bring good news to the prisoner who is stuck in their sin who feel like this sin is just something they're always going to have. This sin that's been with them as long as they can remember and has such a stronghold in their lives. God, you want to use us to set the captives free. You want us to bring spiritual sight to those who are spiritually blind. God, you want us to see the oppressed set free. People that are dealing with spiritual junk weighing down their lives, you have come to set them free and you want to use your church for that. And so Father, as we live that out, I pray that you would guard our hearts. Guard our hearts that that want to drift Guard our hearts that want to get confused again, to think that your blessings are just for me, that think that your blessings is just about what I get, and that I go to church and and Christianity is about me just consuming what I want. Oh God, break us from that addiction of consumption of Christianity. Help us to realize that you have a plan, and we don't understand it. I don't understand it but we are willing to embrace it because we know that your plan is good and that you will accomplish immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine through your power at work in each and every one of us. So God, yes, there will be times when the non-believing world will reject us, but we find our strength in you. We find our strength as we come together online through life groups, through phone calls, through text messages. We find strength in one another. And God, we are reminded today to keep us strong by the power of your spirit to never give in to anger and become furious over your plans. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.